Good morning, New Life Church, and welcome. And welcome also to any of you that might be visiting us online today. We're grateful that you've chosen to be with us this morning. And I want to say Happy Father's Day as well. As a father, as a grandfather, I just want to extend my uh, best greeting to all of you who are dads, even granddads as well. I trust that, uh, like me, maybe this morning you had your uh, favorite roast coffee. Maybe you had uh, some s special cinnamon rolls made by your bride. I know I did. And uh, I, again, I just want to acknowledge you. You have a tremendous role to play in the life of your family and in the life of this church. So happy Father's Day to you. My name is Tim Robertson, and I'm one of the pastors here serving primarily at uh, this West Lynn campus. On a personal note, I just want to say I'm grateful that you've invited me into your living room or your dining room or your study or wherever it is that you might be watching this morning, even as uh, we have invited you into our place of worship as well. So there's hopefully going to be mutual benefit there. I was just on a plane, actually two planes, a week ago, um, my favorite airline, Southwest, and they typically will say once you have landed on the tarmac and you're taxiing to the gate, they'll typically say something like this. Thank you for flying Southwest Airlines. We know that you have lots of choices for travel, and we appreciate you traveling with us. And I got to thinking about that and realized today, especially with online worship gatherings around the country, you have multiple choices where you could be worshiping. And I'm just grateful that you've chosen to invite us into your living room and uh, entrusted us with that responsibility of helping to guide and lead you into worship. I also trust that the next several minutes together in God's Word uh, will be beneficial for you. It has certainly been beneficial for me uh, over the last few weeks as I've been preparing this message. My favorite book in the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. And in chapter 8 of that book, something really phenomenal occurs. Uh, the priest Ezra stands up, and he's in, a, in front of a crowd of Jewish exiles. They've just returned from captivity. They're back in Jerusalem. They've just completed rebuilding the wall under Nehemiah's leadership. And what Ezra does is he stands up, and he opens the scrolls of uh, the book of the Law of Moses, and he begins to read to them. An interesting thing happens. Everybody stands up as well. And that's why we frequently encourage you to do the same, even in your home. When Scripture is being read, um, as we do here um, before every sermon, uh, it, it just shows respect for God's Word. Well, the people stood up and, quote, Ezra read from the book of the Law of Moses from early morning until midday. Well, that's the first wow, because it's like, wow, that's amazing that Ezra is going to read for, for several hours from the book of the Law of Moses. And then the second wow is this. It says that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, there were several Levites that were on the stage with Ezra, but then there were 13 Levites whose names are much too difficult to pronounce uh, this morning, but they dispersed among uh, the crowd and they began, quote, helping the people to understand the law. They too read from the book of the law of God and they, quote, gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Literally, that word 
as they were explaining, literally it means they were translating into language that the people would understand. I like to think that they were unpacking. Those of you who know me, that's one of my favorite words when it comes to teaching and preaching is unpacking. That's an amazing wow to me as well, because that's what I get to do this morning, is to unpack uh, a passage of Scripture, Psalm 65, this morning to all of you. So we've just heard the reading of that psalm, Psalm 65, and I, so I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open, or if it's not, I want you to open a Bible, whether it's digital or paper, get a Bible open, doesn't really matter what version, but get a Bible open to Psalm 65. And as you're doing that, uh, let me pray for us once again. Heavenly Father, thank you, first of all, for who you are. Secondly, the fact that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word, this treasure that we hold in our hands now, specifically through King David writing Psalm 65. We ask that you would uh, just open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our minds, and most important, open up our hearts. Help us to hear your word, to see your word, to understand your word, and then to receive your word so that it gets translated into, into everyday life. Lord, may this time bring glory to you. Uh, we offer this up in the, in the power of your Holy Spirit who wrote this word and who now will help us understand this word. We offer this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Psalm 65 is uh, the final song of a section that actually began back in Psalm 51, David's great psalm of, of, of penitence. All of these in this section from 51 to 65 have been written by King David, and they're part of a kind of a growing crescendo of praise. Now, many of these psalms are laments. We heard that last week when John Roberts did a wonderful job of unpacking Psalm 64 and, and making sense of that for us. This particular one, though, today is, is fairly general in nature. We don't know exactly the, the exact uh, context for this, unlike some of David's other psalms that we've been looking at. It may have been written by David in, uh, to be sung, to be read at a specific festival like the, the uh, Feast of First Fruits explained in Leviticus. Or as we get through the psalm, you'll see that the psalm is filled with the language of abundance, which leads many scholars to believe that this indicated that there had been a time of drought, maybe pestilence or famine, which has just ended. And the people are now rejoicing because God has brought an end to that and, is, and God is bringing abundance once again. Now, those of you that are long-term members of New Life Church, you'll recall that this is our sixth summer of preaching through the Psalms. And when we relaunched our sermon series, the Songs for Summer, three weeks ago, uh, we did it coming right out of the book of Job, and then we just jumped right into to Psalm 62. Um, what I want to do before we get going here is I want to just hit pause briefly and quickly review a little bit of the background of this book. I heard from uh, a new couple in our church, new believers. I heard from them recently that that Psalm 62 sermon was the first one they'd ever heard. 
on the book of Psalms. So I want to just take a, a few minutes and just quickly review some of the context to kind of reset the overall context of this rich collection of Hebrew poetry put to music. Psalms is unlike any other book in Scripture. It's, it's poetry, and in fact, it's Hebrew poetry, which is quite different from English poetry. Um, it's Israel's hymn book. This is not like a letter that Paul wrote. This is not like a gospel that Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John wrote. This is quite different. In fact, the Psalms consist of 150 Psalms. Some are very short, just a couple verses. One is extremely long, Psalm 119. We know that David wrote for sure just under half of them, about 73, we believe. And, uh, but he's not the only one who's, who's written uh, these psalms. Solomon wrote a couple of psalms. Uh, Moses even wrote a psalm. And then the rest are attributed to various worship leaders like Asaph and sons of Korah. Because of the fact that Moses wrote one and you have sons of Korah and other worship leaders who came after David wrote some, uh, the, the, the psalms cover an extended period of time. Yet every single psalm teaches something about the character of God. At the same time, though, it also teaches us about the posture that we as God's people must have when we understand his true character. Those of us who, and, all, all, and that's all of us, who live in, a, in the midst of the tensions of a, of a broken world, made that way because of sin, the curse of sin. The scope of topics uh, within the Psalms, uh, it, the scope is, is expansive, right? You've got praise psalms, you've got songs of lament, like last week's thanksgiving, penitence, wisdom. There are songs asking questions, even making accusations directed toward God. There are songs of cursing, there are prophecies of a coming Messiah. There are songs of instruction, admonition, and we could go on and on and on. But you get the idea. Basically, um, authentic life issues held in tension with the real world. That's what the Psalms deal with, and that's part of the appeal of going through the Psalms. And frankly, in the midst of the current chaos of our culture, what better place to be, right? Job was wonderful in helping us understand and, and coming through the early stages of the pandemic. But now as our culture is pivoting and taking a turn for, frankly, the worse, we, um, this is a great place to be. There's great instruction from these psalms. We hear many voices within the psalms. We hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to God. We hear the voice of the psalmist speaking to God's people. We hear him speaking to his own soul. We hear him even speaking to the wicked. In fact, we even hear the voice of the wicked themselves in some of the Psalms. But in each voice, we hear authenticity. And there's sometimes sh sh shocking honesty. And that's what makes the Psalms uh, such a treasure to study and meditate on. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Eric made this comment. He said, the Psalms are like training wheels. I love that giving us the language to use as we pray back to God. So 
there's, there's language in the Psalms that God has designed for us to be able to even pray back to Him and to use to share with Him as we share our frustrations, our fears, our, our anger, our hopes, our joys. All of those things are in the Psalms. And that's why uh, it, it's so much fun to be able to preach through the Psalms every summer here at New Life Church. And then when we sing through the Psalms, as we do every summer and we're doing again this summer, uh, we engage not only our minds, but we also engage our hearts and even our emotions as we sing the psalms. These songs express our prayers and thoughts and emotions to God, but they also simultaneously uh, shape and form our thoughts and emotions and character before God. So as we sing the psalms, God's word gets implanted, it gets embedded uh, in our very heart and in our minds. Well, I could say much more about the structure and the arrangement of the Psalms. There's a lot of really curious things about the 150 Psalms, but we'll leave that for another time and place. Let's jump into Psalm 65. You'll notice that the first line of today's Psalm indicates the theme, and that theme is praise. Now, that's not a new theme especially to David in his psalms. But the focus of this psalm is interesting in that there's a progression of three things that David emphasizes why we should be praising God. And those three things are forgiveness, power, and provision. And I'll repeat those multiple times as we invest the next several minutes in Psalm 65. Here's, here's what I think is a big idea, if not the big idea, of Psalm 65. And this should help you to have some structure to what we're about to look at. The big idea for Psalm 65 is this. We praise and obey God for His forgiveness, for His power, and for His sustaining provision. Now, if you're, you're one who likes alliteration, I'll give you a couple options here. You could call this, using the letter P, you could call this pardon, power, and plenty. Or, if you'd rather use the word G, the letter G, you could say grace, great, greatness, or goodness. In either case, we're going to talk this morning about God's forgiveness, we're going to talk about His power, and we're going to talk about His sustaining provision. Now, we all know uh, that we're living in, in times of uh, uh, just craziness, tumult, uh, turmoil. Uh, it's beyond anything I've ever experienced in my uh, nearly seven decades of life on this planet. There's new crises that are cropping up every day. And I pray that as we look at this psalm, something will resonate with you that, that might relate to something that has just, you've just heard last night or even early this morning before tuning in uh, to this, this uh, worship gathering together. Now, I've been wrestling with this psalm actually for, for several weeks, and I've been searching for words of uh, comfort and strength and encouragement uh, to bolster our faith in these, these crazy times. And frankly, again, uh, that, that has changed as I've wrestled with this over the last few weeks because so much is going on in our society. Yet, God's Word is firm. We can stand uh, steady on His Word, and His Word is relevant to anything and everything that we might face in our crazy culture. 
Before we unpack the reasons for David's praise, I want to note how he begins uh, this poem of praise. Look at verse 1 with me. The ESV says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. Now, that's certainly true. Praise is due to God. We know that from many other parts of Scripture. That's true, uh, especially in light of what David is going to write about here in this specific psalm. But what's interesting is in David's uh, native Hebrew text, verse 1 literally begins this way. To you, silence is praise, O God, in Zion. To you, silence is praise. You might be looking at a New American Standard Bible this morning, and if you look at that, you'll notice that it reads, there will be silence before you. Praise in Zion, O God. There seems to be an equation here between silence and praise. In other words, I believe David is saying, Praise is, is all of what we would think it would be, uh, boisterous singing, uh, exulting in joy, uh, lauding God for who He is, but also praise is silence. And I believe David is calling us at, at the very get-go here, he's calling us to, to start with that, to start with simply being silent in His presence. Do you remember Job? We had, had a study. Pastor Scott took us through several weeks of Job. And after Job's counselor friends had their say, finally in chapter 38, God speaks directly to Job. And then and, and he, he talks about how great he is in his character, in his mighty deeds. He does that for two chapters. And then in chapter 40, Job confesses this, quote, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Here's the connection. When Job was faced with the reality of who God really is, not what his friends thought God was, but who God really is, it stopped him in his tracks, silent. And I believe that is what David is calling us to here in the beginning of Psalm 65 as well. To make my case just a little bit stronger, all you got to do is go back to the Psalm 62, the, the psalm from three weeks ago. Pastor Travis preached on that and, and did a wonderful job, again, of, of unpacking and helping us understand. That psalm begins with the same terminology. For God alone, my soul, what? Waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And then in verse 5, he repeats it. But in this case, uh, David repeats it as a command to himself. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait. There's the command, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. It's almost as if David is saying, look, before we discuss reasons for boisterous singing and praise and thanksgiving to God, stop and be silent before him. The God who forgives, the God of power, and the God who sustains what he has created. 
brothers, sisters, folks, guests, <laughs> visitors, we live uh, in an age of noise. Noise, noise, noise. Television, podcasts, um, social media dominate our days. Things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, etc. Uh, they fill us with noise and they fill us with clutter, producing anxiety, producing confusion, producing fear, producing hopelessness. Uh, the questions arise, well, whose voice can I trust? Just last night, uh, uh, we, we had a, a life group meeting, and, and that question came out, who, who can I trust? I don't know who to trust. I need God's wisdom to know who to trust. What narrative do you believe? That's a term that's being thrown around a lot, narrative. If it doesn't fit your narrative, you don't talk about it, right? But what narrative do you believe? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, th this is the narrative. Here is where it is. Um, a commentator who's with the Lord now was kind of became very well known for making the statement that this is an integrated message system. These 66 books within a book um, from outside our time and space domain. Well, you could say the same thing about the book of Psalms. It's 150 different self-contained um, psalms and songs that speak to the same thing. This is where our narrative comes from. And I just want to say that at the beginning, it is on this narrative that we stand. And we're, we're encouraging everyone at our church, in fact, to find their narrative from God's Word. Well, specifically back to Psalm 65 in the beginning here, in the context of this psalm, silence implies a quiet, trustful rest in God. Waiting in confident expectation that he's going to deliver. That's what it appears these people were doing that David is talking about. If in fact a drought or a famine or some sort of pestilence had occurred, prayers most likely would have been offered for God's deliverance. And then promises or vows, as David calls them, most likely would have been made to God. And once God delivered them, then they, they, would, uh, they would begin to rejoice in that fact. They would begin to, to give God praise uh, for that reality. Let's read again the first four verses. And as I do that, be looking for this. Because in this first section, this first stanza, verses 1 through 4, uh, the, the main idea here is that we praise God for his forgiveness. To you, silence is praise, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. We had a preaching cohort uh, earlier this week, which we do every week with a number of other pastors. There were five of us on the call, and uh, those gentlemen are, are also preaching this, this psalm when we were talking about the approaches that we're going to make. And I just said, you know what, I'm probably going to camp out in the first stanza, the first four verses. They seem to be the most significant and upon which David then builds the rest of his psalm. So we'll invest a little more time in this first stanza than we, and we'll kind of race through 
stanzas two and three. In the very first verse, there is a, an, ex, an example of Hebrew poetry, specifically um, a, 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 an approach called parallelism. And what that means simply is this, Hebrew poetry is not based on words that rhyme, but it's based on phrases that describe and define other phrases. And so typically you'll have a, you'll have a statement like, Praise is due to you, or to you silence is praise. And then the second um, part of the, the second phrase will serve as a defining aspect or, or will, will give greater meaning to what has just been said. And what happens here in the very first verse is there's, there's an indication that praise is connected, inextricably connected to obedience. David says the solemn pledge will be fulfilled. Why? Because that's part of praise. That's part of what we do when we praise God. Even in silence, we recognize I must now respond because God has delivered me. God has answered my prayers. In verse 2, we note that God uh, hears. David says, oh, you who hear prayer to you shall all flesh come. Last Sunday, John talked about this exact same word. The the word to hear literally means to listen with attentiveness and with um, specific attention to detail in order that you might respond and do something. In other words, God listens to our prayers in such a way as to answer our prayers. And you know, this is reflected. Many of you are probably thinking right now of other passages of Scripture. Psalm 66, 19, next week's psalm, says this, Truly God has listened. He has attended to my voice, to the voice of my prayer. I want to take us outside of Psalms just for a second, though. In the book of Daniel, do you remember Daniel? Daniel was uh, an advisor to the king of Persia. And uh, God has him in a really unique situation there, and he's dispensing wisdom through Daniel to a pagan ruler. In Daniel chapter 9, there's a wonderful prayer. I want want to read just part of it to you, because it illustrates the fact that when we pray, we pray to someone who in fact does hear and is attentive to our prayer. Daniel says this, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Oh my God, incline, it's like turn, incline your ear and hear. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Don't you love that? Daniel goes on. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. That is so awesome. Delay not for your own sake, Oh my God, because you're sitting and your people are called by your name. I love that. That's the God that David is encouraging us to praise is the God who hears. And he also says that God's hearing is not limited to the people of Israel, his chosen people, or to the city of Jerusalem. Notice the scope of his reach in the second half of verse 2. To you shall all flesh come. Not just Jewish flesh. But all flesh shall ultimately come to you. In verse 3, which is the essence of this this idea in this first stanza, God forgives. God pardons. God atones. God covers over our sin. And of course, 
We know, as those who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, we know how he does that. He does that through the person of his son, Jesus. Because of his shed blood, our sins are atoned for, literally are covered over by his blood. You know, whenever we preach here at New Life Church, no, no matter what the passage is, we always want to get to Jesus somewhere in that message. Well, and I, I told these pastors this week, I'm going to get to Jesus early because it's right here. It's right here in the first stanza. And that's where David starts. He starts with this idea of forgiveness, of atonement, of covering. And we know where we stand on the other side of the, of the New Testament that that happens only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God forgives. And so the wholeness or the fullness of life then flows out of, and, and what we're going to see here in the rest of the psalm, it literally flows out of this act of forgiveness. Notice too in the beginning of verse 4 that God uh, chooses to be in a relationship with us. I've been asked many, many times, well, why is that, why is that Tim? And frankly, I don't have a good answer for that, except I know that he does. God chooses to be in relationship with the capstone of his creation, with humankind. And we see this here, that there's even a progression. Do you see it in the, the beginning of verse 4? Blessed is the one you choose. Folks, that's covenant language. That's, that's language speaking of, of, the, of the agreement, the unilateral agreement that God is making with his people. That you, you, you choose... And then you bring near and finally to dwell in your courts. And then notice the result in the second part of verse 4. We shall then and therefore uh, be satisfied. This is exactly what David had experienced in his life. You remember? As a, as a young lad, he had been chosen, selected, anointed to be king over Israel. His brothers are like, say, What? This little runt of a guy, this youngest, youngest brother, are you kidding me? But the rest of his life unfolds, and it's not always smooth and easy and, and on an upward track. Not at all. But God chose him and then progressively brings him nearer and nearer and nearer, finally to dwell in his presence. And again, this is not uh, some sort of, uh, of, a, of a formula necessarily, but it is speaking to David's experience. And so David is sharing out of his own personal experience, this is what he's experienced, that God has chosen him, has drawn him near, even in the midst of some hyena sins. And then finally to dwell in his courts. And then look at the results. The result is in the, the second half of verse 4. This results in what? It results in satisfaction. It's a wonderful word. It speaks of being totally satiated, totally filled, totally satisfied. Think of uh, post-Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, right? Remember, David, uh, he'd been living in caves. He'd been living life on the run. Well, now he's safe, he's secure, and he's satisfied. Why? Because he's in the presence of the Lord. Because he's in this holy place with the Lord. Psalm 63, 5, a couple weeks ago we heard, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will therefore praise you with joyful lips. My father, who made it to age 93 before the Lord called him home about five years ago, um, my father used to, he was famous in our family for, after a big meal, big family meal, he would kind of push back from the table, and we all knew it was coming, right? 
And we'd all kind of look at him and he would say, well, I just want you all to know that I am sufficiently serenified. <laughs> I still crack up when I think about that. I didn't even realize that that's actually a real word. But what he was saying was, is like David, he, is, he was totally satisfied with, with what the, that wonderful meal that he had just consumed and enjoyed in the presence of his family. Again, who brings this kind of complete, sufficient satisfaction? The right answer to that question is Jesus. It, Jesus and only Jesus will do that. Not what the culture has to offer, not finances, not a new position, not, not, a, not our spouse, not uh, our, even our children. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone will bring that to us. Well, that's the first stanza, and that, I believe, is, is the most significant of the three stanzas. But let's, let's quickly kind of race through the next two stanzas. Stanza two is verses five through eight. Let me read this again. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope, literally the word is trust, the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, uh, the, the roaring of their waves. And then notice this, the tumult of the peoples. That's interesting, we'll come back to that. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth stand in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. In this section, uh, we, we find that we have, we have just learned that we praise God for his grace in forgiving us. But now David turns his attention and says, we also praise God for his powerful acts. Um, I, would, I would say his powerful acts even in creation. David is stating that God is, he is not like the local tribal gods of the people who lived in the land around him. No, God is not confined to Israel. God is not confined to Jerusalem. Notice his reign extends to the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Verse 6 speaks of how the firmly established nature of God's world is, is one of the realities that point to God's trustworthiness. Verse 7 speaks of the boundaries that he has set. Remember, multiple passages of Scripture uh, from Job to Psalms to Proverbs to Jeremiah speak of God setting boundaries on the, on the chaotic waters of creation and, and on the, the, the seas and the oceans. Plus, interesting, the roaring seas are, in the Old Testament are often a symbol of nations in a tumult and confusion. So what God is saying here is, I will similarly set limits to the power of nations and the turmoil that results from their striving. That word tumult, um, synonyms for that word could be the roar, the rush, the agitation, the confusion, the din. And when I, when I was studying that, I was re realizing, oh my gosh, that, that's exactly what we're experiencing in the craziness of our current culture. Well, verse 8 at the end of the stanza says that these awesome deeds that God has performed and the stilling of, of not only the seas but even the tumult of the peoples, this results in what? It results in awe. That's the same word for fear, fear of the Lord. It results in awe of those who dwell at the ends of the earth. 
Do you see the expansiveness of God's control, the expansiveness of God's power? These righteous, awesome acts of God inspire awe or fear of the Lord, which, as was defined a week ago, is that acknowledgement of our total dependence on God for all aspects of life. That, that, that's what fear of the Lord can be summarized as, the acknowledgement of our total dependence on God for all aspects of life. And just for good measure, at the end of verse 8, David ends it by saying, you even make the going out of the morning, or the dawn, and the evening, or the dusk or sunset, to shout for joy. So even creation begins to join in this shout of praise for the power of what God has done. So we praise God for his forgiveness. We praise God for his power. Finally, uh, the last stanza, verses 9 through 13, we praise God for his sustaining provision. I'm not going to take the time to read those verses, but you've got them right in front of you. And let me just call some things to, to your attention. Everything you see in these verses is described in excess, abundance, above and beyond what is necessary. In fact, there are, there are 10 verbs or action words in verses 9, 10, and 11. All of them have God as the subject. God is the one who provides necessities of life. God is the one who sustains this life on this planet that he has created by his mighty acts of creation. God is the one. There's no other substitute for that. He is the one who is in control. One commentator put it this way. The emphasis is on God's goodness and his generosity to his people. The rains come in abundance. The rivers and streams overflow. The harvest is plenteous. The grain wagons are full. In fact, the grain spills into the wagon ruts. Why? Because God covenanted to care for this land, the land of Israel, and to visit it with his blessing if only his people would honor and obey him. In fact, in Leviticus 26, God says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. What an amazing promise that God has given us and so we praise him for his sustaining provision. Again, we praise him for his forgiveness. We praise him for his mighty power. And now we praise him for his sustaining provision. There's rain in abundance. The, the river of God never goes empty, right? There's beautiful, uh, bountiful blessings that, are, that creation wears almost like a, a, crowd, a, a crown, um, in verse 12, from the desolate places, the wilderness, all the way to the hills, they gird themselves with joy. They're overflowing. It's like, it's like putting on a belt of abundance. I love this language. Isn't it graphic? For those of you that think in word pictures, uh, this third stanza is, was written for you. It's meant to be sung by you. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. As a young shepherd boy, David would have seen that. He would have observed this. From the desolate places in the wilderness, uh, he would have seen God's sustaining mercies. He would have seen the abundance of God uh, coming after the rains on the hills, throughout the meadows, and even into the valleys. 
Here's a key point. In other words, the earth's very fruitfulness in itself is an act of praise. Put another way, it is through fruitfulness that creation glorifies God. Think about that. There's a lesson there, right? That same thing applies to us. Our fruitfulness, becoming all that God has intended us to be, doing all that God has entrusted us to do, is is literally our act of praise. It's our act of praise and worship. Well, this results, as the end of each of the other psalms resulted in something, this results in creation itself uh, praising God. Nature joins in praise. Worship, thanksgiving. There's multiple other passages in, in Scripture that, that speak to that same, same truth. It's interesting. David began this psalm, Psalm 65, with silence. And we must, we must be silent before the Lord. It, it, it's, it's time for us maybe to shut the mouth and to simply Uh, sit before the Lord, to not lash out at someone, whether that's in person or online, but to simply uh, sit in silence and wait for God to give us his direction. We must be silent before the Lord. But then after silence, uh, we must praise and we must follow through, right? Talk is cheap, right? So David's not encouraging us to just run around and just spout all kinds of platitudes here. He's saying be silent, but then um, act accordingly. As Christians, just as they fulfilled their vows, let's fulfill our vows. This, this is why the big idea, I'll repeat it again, I said we praise and obey God for His forgiveness, for His power, and for His sustaining provision. I remember in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, Jesus commissions His disciples to what? To go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to what? To observe just a few things that he wanted them to do, right? No, to observe all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. So we praise God in silence, through our voice, but then maybe ultimately, most importantly, through our actions, through our behavior. Well, what will this look like? I want to end this message with just one potential, um, positive, concrete suggestion for all of us to consider. And it's, it's actually found in verse 8, the end of verse 8. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. In other words, both the dawn and the dusk, the beginning and the end of the day, literally, somehow, praise God. How about us? How about if we do that? What if we bookended our days with praise, just as creation does? Would that change how we feel about the chaos in our current culture? I think so. Would that inform uh, how we think, what we say, when we say it? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of talk lately about narrative. What, What is your narrative? Well, God informs our narrative, and I think it would be helpful if we would just stop and be silent and wait on God and listen to His voice at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day. I think that would change potentially what happens and what we do with the in-between hours every day as well. I want to end this morning with, in a little bit 
slightly different way, and that is I simply want to give you several seconds of silence, and then I'll pray. Your uh, screen has not frozen. I, I simply want you just to be quiet. Be quiet for the Lord for several seconds. And again, then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to develop that habit, but to develop it in such a way that it lasts even longer than the few seconds we just sat in silence. We desperately need your help, Father. We thank you for the truth of this psalm from David and how it speaks to our forgiveness, it speaks to your power, and it speaks to your provision. And as a result, we praise you. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who chose to come and live among us, just like us, yet without sin, and then to do the ultimate act of, uh, of love, and that is to give himself for us and to die for us, and then to be raised again, and then to give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. So we, we pray to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're grateful, and we praise you for who you are and what you desire to do in our lives. May you be glorified through us, Lord. Take the truth of Psalm 65 and drive it deep into not only our minds, but our hearts, so that it would uh, take root and bear fruit for your glory, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.